Blog Talk Radio. Hello, happy Friday, or that's what today is anyway, although you may be listening at another time. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited about this next couple of shows that I'm going to be doing because we're going to be talking about something that's so important, planning therapy activities for toddlers and preschoolers with language delays. But before we get going with our topic, let me take a few minutes to share some announcements. First of all, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to Speech Associates and Speech Inc. who invited me to Toronto. I was there a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago exactly, and I had a blast. We had so much fun uh, with that large, large group, and they were excited to be there and so polite, which was kind of my joke the whole day about how how thoughtful and considerate uh, and uh, just warm hospitality that Johnny and I felt when we were there and we just again had so much fun so I wanted to be sure to thank them and uh, kind of made some little jokes about the differences between that kind of audience and the <laughs> the southern and midwestern and eastern audiences that I'm used to dealing with we Americans are, we do have some cultural differences so it was it was kind of fun to uh, joke about that they they laughed about that and I certainly did too so it was a fantastic day and again I just want to take this opportunity to thank them publicly because I had such a good time. Secondly, the the show that we're talking about today, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a promotion for Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, because the information that we'll be talking about over the next couple of sessions is I, I pulled as background information material from the therapy manual. So because of that, I am going to offer, and I don't think I've ever done this before on the podcast, a special podcast coupon code specifically for the therapy manual. So if you will just enter podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, in the coupon code box when you purchase the therapy manual, you'll get $10 off. And that's a great uh, sale price for that. It, I, I can't do math because I'm a speech pathologist, but I believe that's a little <laughs> close to 20, 25% off that uh, sale price of that book. So it's a super, super sale, and if you're into saving money, that'll certainly be something um, that you want to check out. All right, so let's move on to this topic. So over the next couple of shows, well, let me just say, I thought originally this would be one show, and I've sort of planned it for the last couple of weeks, and then today when I sat down to really look at it, I thought, who am I kidding here? <laughs> this is a lot more information than I can possibly cover in one hour. So this will be a little mini-series. Now, the beginning of this year, we had a long series of shows where we talked about the 11 skills that toddlers must master before words are uh, appear or before talking and using words are a realistic goal. This series is going to be shorter. To me, it looks like it'll be three or four shows, but I think I've gotten such good feedback from listeners who've said, hey, I like that you stayed on one topic for a little while so that we could really think about it and dive into it and you know I would go back and listen to a part of the show that I didn't listen to before or if um, I could recommend the show or, or recommend specific parts of the shows to families that I work with so I wanted to be sure and mention that and I forgot to say something that I, I was going to mention before too that series that we just did the 11 skills that toddlers must master before 
um, they begin to use words is about to be a book it's really it's closer <laughs> and I wanted to mention that so that hopefully it's going to be out before the end of the year it's 2016 if you happen to you know these shows live on so if you're listening in 2017 2018 and you think I've already seen that book it's a, hopefully it's going to be out by the end of 2016 and then even before that's released the is it autism workbook will be ready I have just poured my heart and soul in that book to try to make it everything that I wanted it to be and I mentioned it several months ago on the podcast and then while we were in Canada some folks asked me about it and then I've gotten some emails about it it's coming it's coming <laughs> but I just wanted to go ahead and mention that again all right so here we are back talking about today's topic how do we select therapy activities for toddlers and preschoolers now you'll know from your own personal experience that planning anything for a toddler can be a challenge planning a meal planning an outfit planning an outing <laughs> everything is harder when we are thinking about young children in general and not to mention when we when we layer a particular developmental delay on top of the normal challenges that we feel in working with and parenting uh, little kids and so selecting effective therapy activities can be really really tricky how do you know where to start how do you know what to do you know do you just go in and dump out a toy box and just say you know let's let's just go for it here let's see what happens you know you could do that <laughs> but you may spend a few sessions or hours spinning your wheels a little bit thinking there has to be a better way I have to I have to have a little bit more structure when I'm planning this therapy time uh, because frankly especially if you're a therapist you don't get to see a kid all, probably as often as you would like you're only there an hour a week 30 minutes a week you know 45 minutes every two weeks whatever it is that you have been assigned to you, you have limited time with children so we do need to spend some time after we write outcomes and set our goals I think it's really important that we spend some time even in that beginning initial process of thinking about what we'll do with a kid over the course of a child's plan it's, it doesn't make any sense to me that we would not think about the specifics so I'm going to walk you through in today's show three important factors that I use to help me determine what it is that I'm actually going to do during the therapy session now let me just say some programs state programs or individual agencies or whatever and even some philosophical programs or or authors or experts may say you know don't really worry about the activity don't plan anything just kind of go with the flow go into a parent's house and do what they're doing and just you'll 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 know your strategies and it'll all fall into place and yeah that's true but <laughs> I feel like if we can devote some energy and purposeful intention at the beginning when we're again writing writing an evaluation determining our goals setting our plan when we're when we spend some time really really thinking about that particular child we amplify the results that we are likely to achieve because we've get, again been intentional and we've been purposeful and we've we we're not just flying by the seat of our pants here so I want to share with you these three factors in this show that I consider 
when I'm playing activities. And then toward the end of the show, I'll tell you what the next couple of weeks will look like. And so let me just say, too, that we can really mess this up with toddlers because a lot of times we don't use activities that match where the child is. And I always call this, you know, meet a child where he is. And if you are a longtime listener of that show, you've heard me say this over and over and over. And actually in the new Is It Autism workbook that I've talked about, and and this is in the Is It Autism CE course as well, there's a whole section on beginning our planning therapy programs for children with figuring out exactly where a child is functioning. And, you know, we think about that as what are the assessment results. And certainly that's, that's our number one consideration here. We are determining a child's developmental level. And as a parent, you may not think too much about that because you think, well, developmental level, he's, he's two. That, that's his developmental level. Not necessarily. <laughs> we want to look at where his skills tell us he's functioning developmentally. And that sounds a little wordy for a parent. As a therapist, you know what that means. But for a parent, it means, you know, how, how is he talking? Is he talking like he's two and a half? Probably not if you're listening to the show. <laughs> Probably, definitely not if you have him in therapy, right? And so you want to look at where he is actually, I can't think of a better word than functioning, where his skills tell you that he is. So if he's two and a half, but he has the same vocabulary, the same level of comprehension or understanding as a 15-month-old or an 18-month-old, that's a different developmental level than a child who's two and a half. Now, he may still have some of the same interests, and we'll get to that in a minute. But knowing a child's developmental level is really, really critical. Let me give you some examples of how we can mess this up. We, as speech pathologists, may use materials that are that we have used with other children to treat similar issues, but we don't consider the child's developmental level. Let's just say, just for the sake of example, that you are a school-age speech pathologist. So you see school-age children, kindergarten and early elementary school for most of your day, but you moonlight as an early interventionist. So you see some kids after school, or let's say you're switching, you're switching roles that you had previously worked in the schools, but now you're going to bump down and work in an early intervention program. And let's say that you have a kid who's hard to understand, and you, after your evaluation, you realize, okay, he doesn't have any of a particular sound class. So no representations of a particular sound class. And again, if you're a parent, you're thinking, what the heck is she talking about? So let's say that he makes no sounds at all with his lips closed. And we call those bilabial. So P, B, and M. And let's just think about W, T, because that's a, a lip sound as well. So let's say that you think, well, this whole sound class is missing. So when I worked in my school, I had this great worksheet that was so effective. And so you decide, I'm going to just use this worksheet or, or let's do this. Because the worksheet now, now thankfully, <laughs> that would be something that I think 99.9% .9 of therapists would not do if you were working in early intervention. Let's say you decide, though, hey, I'm going to use my flashcards here. I'm going to get all of my flashcards that have sounds, that words that begin or end with those sounds, you know, P's and B's and M's. And you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this because this worked so well for me before. 
but then you get there and your you know two-year-old two-and-a-half-year-old client is not interested in that at all and why would that be because he's not developmentally ready for flashcards he may not be symbolic he meaning that the picture doesn't mean anything to him it's not really representative it's just another thing another piece of paper it's he's not really linked meaning between the cup that he sees on the picture is the same as the cup that you're using. Let's let's use a better example here. The puppy. Let's say puppy is one of your target words here. And you've got the flashcard of the puppy, and you're trying everything you can to get him to say puppy, and he has no interest in the flashcard. And you think, well, this kid needs some discipline. He needs a behavior modification. He won't play with the flashcard. That's not it. <laughs> it's that he's not cognitively or developmentally there yet he doesn't realize that that picture of the puppy is the same thing as the dog he may see outside in the front yard so again you've got to really really know a child's developmental level so that you can successfully select therapy materials and activities let's do one other way a lot of times we kind of use the example where we're trying to use activities that are above a child's developmental level it can be just as bad <laughs> for lack of a better word for it to occur the other way for the problem to be the other situation where you are taking in uh, you know really or or if a child is coming to you or if you're trying to play with a child in his home and you want him to stack rings or uh, stack blocks and that is just way too boring for him from that developmental perspective because he would rather be challenged with, say, a train set, you know, with lots of tunnels and bridges and you know, 10 or so different trains and lots of other accessories, you know, trees and little people, conductors and the station. He wants to do all of those other things because his little brain is beyond what you're trying to get him to do if you're stacking blocks or or with a shape sorter or something that's obviously below where he's functioning developmentally. So we have to consider and know a child's developmental level so that we can get that just right place and so that we can select materials and activities and topics and materials that are appropriate for him. We want him to be engaged with us we want him to want to do what's there to do and again we can do a lot of talking about following a child's lead and that's never a bad idea because if he's doing something if a child is selected in an activity on its own more often than not he hits all of the areas that we're going to talk about today he he, he instinctively knows what he likes and where he's functioning and so that's that's a good idea always to look at what a kid likes to do and start there but beyond that you know sometimes we'll have to we'll ask a parent what is it like to do and the parent just kind of sits there befuddled because they they say you know gosh he doesn't really like much of anything or they'll say all he likes to do is his ipad and let me just mention here i'm not going to get on the soapbox about screens today because goodness knows i could beat that drum forever and ever and ever but the kids who over rely on so let me say it this way the kids who love screens the most need it the least so kids who just are glued to an ipad kids who you know will wrestle the phone from mom's hand and will want to play with it for you know 
hours at a time. Kids who were just glued in front of the TV, screen kids. Those, a lot of times those children, again, are the kids who are not interacting and they're not communicating because they have not established that one-on-one back-and-forth social reciprocity piece, meaning and not that they ignore people all the time, but just that they don't find a lot of intrinsic pleasure in interacting with people. They, they're visual kids, you know, and we know that because they're, they love their little screens. That's their activity preference, if we were kind of thinking about that. And that's not always bad, but at the same time, we want to get beyond that. Communication, you know, occurs between people. And so we want to be sure that we are not using materials that would actually be counterintuitive to what our overall goal would be. So if you want a kid to interact with you and he just seems stuck on a screen, don't use a screen. And I'm not an app therapist anyway. I play and involve kids in what they would normally do in their daily routine. So I'm I'm not, I, I don't do a lot of that anyway. And a lot of therapists, I think, have become overly dependent on using apps in therapy. And again, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that because there's certainly children that that's where we have to begin because that's really the only thing that they like. But there are going to be ways that you can tweak it and use it so that it doesn't hamper your efforts and it doesn't interfere with your efforts. I had a little girl that I treated years ago, and she's on the spectrum and really, really had a hard time interacting with people. And so I saw her for a while and that her mom was going to transition into public school services. And she said, you know, Laura, we, the mom was kind of coming back and telling me that she was a little bit disappointed in the first few sessions that the little girl had with her school speech pathologist. She said, because even though the very, you know, one of the first goals on the IP is that she'll improve her, um, interaction and communication, you know, with others, with other kids around age, with other people, you know, however they worded it, you know, within the classroom, the therapist would use apps exclusively through the session. And she said, of course, she told, the therapist told her at the end, well, she hardly paid attention to me. I could hardly get her attention. And the mom was intuitive enough to say, what what did you do? What activities did you use? And she said, oh, we were on the iPad the whole time. And mom just thought, well, no wonder. <laughs> you doomed yourself here. And so we have to think about that. And we have to, again, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself when we're thinking about interest and preferences because we'll do that. But you have to be sure that you are matching what you are doing in therapy with what your goals are and with what the kid needs. And so I wanted to mention that that little thing about materials here with even as we're selecting materials, be sure that you're thinking about, well, does that still fit into with what our overall intention is here and our overall outcome? If I want him to really, really interact with and play with me, I probably shouldn't use something that would almost ensure that that didn't happen or would prevent it. Same thing with something like using a material or a toy that a child is obsessed with. So if you have a kid, and this, every time I give this example in live conferences, you know, you can just feel the agreement among the participants because when I give this example, I'll say a trained kid, a Thomas kid, and everybody has seen a Thomas kid or kids who, are, who love trains on their caseloads. It's kind of one of the little... Uh, you know, commonalities that a lot of our little friends have. And so 
for some kids, you really can't use their very favorite thing, and we'll get to that in a minute when we talk about interest and preferences, because, again, it will prevent them from doing what it is that you want to accomplish in the first place. So you have to really balance all of these things as we're talking. As we're back to developmental level, sometimes a child will appear to like something, and it will appear that it's, you think, oh, well, his developmental level, he's carrying around this car, and so he's really into pretend play, or she's carrying around this baby doll. She's really into pretend play. That must be her developmental level. That's where we'll start. And then you realize, oh, that's not it. It, it, there's something, some sensory property about that doll or about the car or whatever that the kid doesn't even really play with it. They just kind of hold it. And so, again, you have to really, really look at a child's developmental level to figure out um, where's this kid, what materials will be appropriate, what activities might engage him more readily than other kinds of things that we might do, what are some suggestions and recommendations that I can make to mom and dad based on his developmental level because, again, sometimes parents don't know these things. If they have older children, maybe they haven't thought about this for their child with delays. And so most of the materials, meaning toys that they have around their house, they um, are all kind of geared to the older kid who's communicating and who's saying to mom and dad, hey, you know, I want more Hot Wheels or I want Batman or or things that would be above where our little friend is functioning developmentally. Or maybe here, here's what happens a lot when we're looking at a child's developmental level, the child has turned two or three, but developmentally he's still hanging back there at that 12-month level. And so mom has already put away a lot of the toys that would really be appropriate for that child because she's thinking, he's older than that. Those are baby toys. I've got to get rid of those. And I've just had countless moms that were having conversations about these kinds of things, and I'm, I'm showing them and recommending play activities for them and if I've brought some toys they're saying gosh I have those but I put those up a long time ago it, he didn't seem interested in those things and so parents will miss it is that when they were presenting those particular toys at that particular time those kinds of toys were even if they were simple were probably still above where that child was functioning developmentally and so the kid didn't play with them not because he really wasn't interested he just didn't know how to play or he wasn't there developmentally so we do really 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 have to find that just right balance with exactly where that kid is functioning developmentally and your test will give you some information about that now sometimes we'll have children who have really big disparities when we're using our assessment. So they may have receptive language that's way higher than their expressive score. And again, that, that follows a more normal pattern. Typically developing children usually understand more than they can express, right? And so you may have a kid who again is two or three, we're talking about toddlers, or even a kid that's you know close to two, 20 months, 22 months, who cognitively is moving right along. And so you think, okay, if I'm going to consider developmental level, this child isn't saying anything, so I need to back up and you know, do a lot of cause and effect and a lot of object permanence and really simple problem-solving kinds of toys because that's where he's functioning developmentally. That That's where his expressive skills are developmentally. When I'm talking about developmental level here, I'm really 
emphasizing that cog cognitive piece or his cognition and receptive language and remember that those go hand in hand if you're a speech pathologist and you're thinking well i don't know what his cognitive level is look at the results from your receptive language section because remember those always go together you are not going to have a child have you know huge unless there's like a processing problem and he, we do have some children who will have some cognitive strengths that aren't related to language you know those are the kids that you know we kind of say oh you know, they're going to be computer programmers or uh, these kinds of kids, you know, they, they have some real splinter skills and some strengths and, you know, I, technological things. And so sometimes, you know, I want to hand in my phone and say, can you fix my phone? <laughs> this is what's messing up for me because they have strengths in that area, you know, just glaring strengths that that would language-wise, you know, when we look at them comparatively, they're not doing this level of language. So here when I'm referring to developmental level, I really am thinking about and, and considering where the child is functioning cognitively. And we know that play is our very best way to judge where a child is functioning cognitively. And so, so that's where we want to really, really look at this. And, and when I say consider developmental level, that's what I'm really, really talking about. So if you'll think about a child's receptive language skills, you know, is he able to follow one-step commands? Can he bump up and follow some two-step commands? You know, that's going to even give you some basic information there. Two-step commands, that, that's more toward a 24-month level. A kid who's struggling to follow any kind of simple command is really down there at the 12-month developmental level. And so there's a big, big difference there when we're thinking about this kind of thing, when we're selecting our materials and picking activities. So you want to make sure that you are distinguishing that. You want every activity or toy or event, whatever you want to think about, to fall between being novel enough to keep the kids' attention, meaning that, oh, I like it, this is fun, but um, easy enough for him to have at least some degree of success with play. And here we're kind of talking about we're talking about cognitively, meaning that he understands the toy, he knows what to do, but we're also thinking about motorically have you ever had a child who seemed to want to play with something and they really really liked it but just whatever the specific action that they were supposed to do with their little hands they just couldn't do it I think back to little toys like uh, Polly Pockets do you know those toys those little bitty dolls that are kind of um, they're not plastic. They're, they're plastic, but they're really, really malleable. They, they really, really move. They're kind of squishy. And so our, our daughter, who's now 20, <laughs> loved Polly Pockets. And she, but she loved them before she could really get the clothes on and off. So what did that mean? That meant that I had to do it or her brothers had to do it or her dad had to do it. And that was kind of a pain. But she liked it, and she persisted in playing with those forever. But at the beginning, when she first started to like them, they were just – too hard they were too too much of a challenge now if she had not had that persistence and that stick-to-itiveness that kept her wanting to play with that you know her internal drive it was fun enough for her to keep wanting to try and to learn how to do it but our kids who have delays may not have that they may want to play with something and it looks fun and it captures their attention and it even keeps their attention but they start to play with it and they just fall apart because they can't perform the fine motor action they don't have enough control to actually play 
so that they get the benefit or the success. And so what do they do? They have such a low frustration tolerance that they stop. They walk away. They they throw it. They <laughs> they uh, just start using it in a way that's not appropriate. Or they, like I said before, they just lose interest or they avoid it because the task becomes so frustrating for them. Or it's just not appealing because they can't make it work. I'm kind of like that with um, – you know, something new, if it's something that I've never done before, if if it's just too hard, I'm I'm that personality, unless there's a big payoff for me, I just say forget it or I get somebody else to do it for me. And so our kids are like that too. So you have to find that just right place. And that's why sometimes they don't really want to play with a toy. It's not that they don't want to play with it. They can't play with it. They can't you know, get it hooked up right, or they don't remember the sequence of, you know, what buttons to push in what order. And so, again, that's just a little bit too complex for that activity to be fun, and so then they don't want to do it anymore. Now, when you'll have a kid like that or an activity like that, adult support means everything. So if you can sit there with them and play with them and do the parts that they can't do, it's actually a fantastic reason for them to communicate. So if you find a toy or a material that's just really above, just one little baby step above what they can realistically do, and they like it well enough to want to stay with you, oh, boy, that's a winner because then they have that internal motivation and a reason for you to be there with them. So we'll continue to talk about that, but let's just wrap up here our first factor is considering a child's developmental level. Make sure that you know where a child is functioning. And again, we're looking at the cognitive piece as well as the motor piece. And you want it to still be interesting enough to keep capture and keep their attention, but easy enough for the child to want to continue to do it. It can't be so hard that they just say forget it and walk away. The next piece that we want to consider is a child's regulatory level. Now, what do I mean by regulatory level? I mean, is he calm enough and and settled enough to sit here and play with this activity for more than two seconds? And if you have a child, if you're a mom listening to this, who's busy, who's constantly on the go, who is just in perpetual movement from the time his little feet hit the ground in the morning until he just falls out of sleep, hopefully for a nap in the afternoon or certainly at night. You know what I mean by this? We have to get kids in that that state where they are alert enough to play. You know, they can't be drowsy. They can't be sick or have some other physical challenge going on so that they are just not into whatever it is that you're doing because their little bodies aren't ready. You know, we've kind of got to keep them, bump them up from there, but not so over the top wound up that they can't settle down to play with us and really sit and enjoy. Now, a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about, movement's a part of that. So moving is inherent with that. So you'll kind of get to the point where you're thinking, oh, well, regulatory level let me consider his regulatory level here and it seems like he needs to move right now because he keeps trying to get up and run away from me (laughs) when I'm trying to get him to play with this play-doh or look at this book or play with this racetrack whatever it is that you're doing the kid keeps getting up and leaving and running away from you and doing everything he can sometimes it's not that he doesn't like what you're doing sometimes it's that his little body is just dysregulated and he needs 
something to make him feel better. And a lot, a lot of kids need movement so that they feel like they can sit and attend. And you'll know, you know that feeling too. When let's just, you know, think back to grad school if you're a therapist. If you had a professor that you just, let's say you had three classes in a row, and by that third class you were just zonked out. I mean, it was hard to pay attention. And so you wanted to get up and go get a drink of water or jiggle your foot or do something that gave your little system a boost so that you could pay attention. That's what a lot of times our kids are doing. They're knowing, you know, and again, when something is a little bit hard for them and everything in therapy is hard or else, you know, again, why would we be there? If you're trying to get them to talk and that's hard or to pay attention and that's hard or to understand and follow some directions and that's hard or you're teaching them something, again, that is brand spanking new. They've never seen it before. They've never done it before. So, it's, it, and it's too complex for them to be novel. You know, it's kind of gone over that line. The regulatory systems, you kind of go into that fight, flight, or freeze. And so flight, again, is that movement piece that I need to get away. I need to do something else. My body wants to jump around. I'm, I, you know, I need to do something here to make this experience more comfortable for me. You know, a lot of times we'll have two kids that are on the opposite end of that. We always sort of talk about our movers and shakers, our kids who really, really need a lot of movement to keep themselves regulated or who like a lot of movement because that just feels so good to them. But we also have kids that are on the opposite end of that who can be just as challenging to work with, our little low arousal friends. And these are our friends that do just kind of seem to get fixated on something or stuck on something or they're just kind of glazed over or look a little bit blank sometimes and that's that's also because of their regulatory state a lot of times uh, our little friends who are have who are medicated who have um seizure disorders is a big one some of the meds that we have to give our kids who are more significantly involved really really will affect their regulatory level you look at them and you say you know bless your little heart this is so hard for you to stay with me and to pay attention and to Focus on what I'm doing here. And, again, we have to think about that regulatory level so that we help kids find that just right place. And, again, if you'll kind of think about your own system and things that you know that you do or that you know that you need, and this is particularly important for parents. Therapists are are good at thinking about this because it's something that we – apply to the children that we work with, but sometimes we don't always explain this to parents. Or parents will think about regulatory level and they are really thinking that we're talking about behavior. And so they are really thinking that we are saying, oh, he's got to sit in one place or he's bad. You know, they look at it like that. And so we have to help them understand our our body systems in what would constitute enough movement for one kid to make him settled enough and for another kid you might use that same amount of movement but it's to rev him up and so we have to really look at an individual child's needs and think about what is his little what are his actions telling me that his little body is communicating to him and then explain that in a way to a parent that makes sense now that all if you're a mom or a dad you may be thinking this lady has just lost me <laughs> I have no idea what she's talking about or what she means here if your child is having these kinds of issues get a good occupational therapist who specializes in sensory processing who can ex- and uh, sensory regulation who can explain 
explain these things to you about your specific child, and, and this is my point that I was trying to make and kind of took a detour. A lot of times with parents, if you will put the example to a parent in terms of what they do and in terms of how they feel, and you use the example like if you sat through a really long class and you just you were learning so much new information that you just felt like, oh, I've got to get out of here, a parent will identify with that. Or say something like, you know, if you're in a boring meeting or if you're at church and you're just sitting and sitting and sitting and, you know, you want to go to sleep and you think, oh, I'm about to nod off here because this is not quite as exciting enough for me to keep me awake and into it and listening. Parents will understand that and that will make more sense to them because you've given them an example that's relative to their own bodies and their own systems. So try to think about things like that and ask parents some questions about that. You can usually always figure out an example that would be relatable for a parent just based on watching the parent and just you know sometimes if, if a parent's chewing gum I may say you know that chewing gum might be something that you do to kind of keep yourself alert and into it and awake and they may not have thought about it that way they may be saying oh I chew gum you know because I like the way it tastes or for my breath or something like that, but you can usually find an example that will help a parent understand this internal need that we all feel and, and the, the signals that we can all read about ourselves as we get older and mature, but signals that we can look for in a child that will let us know what's going on with a regulatory level. Now, we talked about movement, and let me just say movement works great Again, for almost all toddlers because little kids need and like to move. And so I've talked about this a lot on the show and in the live courses that I teach and certainly in the, the books that I've written, particularly in uh, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. With my philosophy about this is I want to keep using and keep thinking about move, sit, move, sit, move, sit as my lesson plan. And if you're an educator, that's a term that you're familiar with. You know, teachers plan what they're going to do for kids and therapists do that too you know we call them treatment plans or lesson plans or whatever you want to call them but if you'll think about you know even as a parent and working with your child and you're thinking about planning planning your time with him so that you can be really really effective a lot of times we think oh I'm just going to have him sit down here with me and we're going to sit and we're going to do this together and we'll be sitting you know sit is the operative word there and a lot of kids really can't sit for as long as we need them to sit <laughs> to learn something so we have to adapt what we're doing and give them what their little bodies need and and their little systems need so that move sit move sit move sit philosophy really really works for just about every single kid and what I mean by that is you're going to do some activities sitting down but then when you feel like you're losing that child you're going to get up and move around and you're still doing therapy you're still working on language or whatever whatever particular goal that you're targeting you're just going to do it when you're up and and actively engaged in something and then when the kid seems more settled and more calm then you go back to really a sit down activity so that move sit move sit move sit is something that will first of all make things less boring because you're getting up and doing something and engaging your whole body rather than just again on sitting there on your bottom and just doing things with your hands and then maybe not much of anything else so when we feel a kid's attention waning 
we know that's always our signal that we need to get up and move around and do an activity that's a little more woohoo, you know, a little more uh, movement based there. And then after we get them calmed down a little bit, when a kid looks like he's getting a little bit worn out and tired, that's when you know, okay, this is a good time to sit down. And this is a good time, you know, after several minutes of moving, okay, let's try to go back and do this more traditional sit-down play activity. So think about a kid's arousal level. Think about using movement in that way. Movement breaks will help kids really stay with you because we get their little systems revved up and then they calm down. And then when we're losing them, when they're too low, when when their arousal level, when they're getting a little sleepy or when they're just not paying as much attention anymore, then we get back up and move again. So I hope that by alternating that moving and sitting and moving and sitting, if you'll think about that even as a parent when you're working with your child, that really is an effective way to address all of the different regulatory um, levels that a child will feel even in one hour or one session, however your work time happens, uh, the length of time that you're working with a child. So if we are good at this and if we, as the adult, will really tune into that, you'll start to fall into a rhythm and you'll start to really know he can, you know, if the activity that I'm having him sit down and do with me is interesting to him and fun enough for him, you may be able to really, again, start to reduce the amount of time that he even needs to move. So don't feel like oh my gosh, you know, I'm just going to wear myself out with this and wouldn't it just be more effective if I just taught him how to sit and if I just, you know, rewarded and punished, you know, for lack of a better word, that wouldn't it be, wouldn't my time be better served figuring that out versus all this move, sit, move, sit, move, sit that you want me to do? No, because if you will provide enough input, meaning that movement piece, enough little opportunity for him to, run around, jump around, bump into things, you know, move his arms and legs vigorously. If you'll provide that enough, automatically will increase the amount of time that he's going to be able to sit still with you. And a lot of parents don't believe that until they really see it happen. And, you know, I'll say, hey, this moving part, this jumping up after two minutes of play to run around and act kind of crazy, that's going to get better over time. And, again, they may not believe me until they really see it happen. And if you're an experienced therapist, you've certainly seen that happen. You've had children at the beginning that you think, oh, this child is just you know, a sensory seeker. He's just all over the place all the time. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But then you apply your strategies, you know, your movement, your deep pressure, all of the things that we've learned how to do. And then they, they do start to stay with you for longer and longer and longer periods of time. And so the sitting piece becomes longer than the moving piece. And we're all kind of relieved when that happens. But just stick with that approach because it really will uh, make a difference. And and you're going to need to just pay attention to that regular regulatory level with every kid every session and know that it will change even in a kid who might might seem a little docile or a little quiet or reserved for a period of time sometimes those low arousal kids kind of swing the other way where they get an OT and we really get things going and I feel like boy their little brains are just expanding and their little systems are just maturing and everything's going great so they almost swing so wide the other way that they that they sort of look like they're out of control sometimes because it's so different than they were at the beginning. And so that will normalize too. So just know that we can have some wide variability in a child's regulatory levels and that's okay. And certainly 
I bet you see that in your own life. You know, you drink too many cups of coffee and you're just like, woohoo, you know, and you're just kind of bouncing off the walls yourself. And so you can relate, you know, then eventually you get some water, that caffeine wears off over time, you calm it back down. So just think about those examples and think about those differences and that'll help you sort it out in your own mind. And then certainly if you're a therapist, it will help you explain that to parents with how those regulatory differences can make a big um, qualitative difference in how a child responds to you. And so we have to be able to read those signals and adapt what our plans are to really consider that child's um, regulatory state. And again, if that's new to you, if you're a parent, and if you have access to an occupational therapist on your child's team, spend some time talking about that. You know, say, hey, I was listening to this podcast and this speech pathologist kept talking about regulation and she was talking about move sit move sit and she was talking about that sometimes we have to really rev a kid up to get him to pay attention just think about the words that I've used here and talk to your OT about that and have them explain that to you as it relates to your own child and and that will make more sense then all right so the first two factors that we're going to consider when planning activities first we talked about the developmental level and then secondly we talked about the regulatory level the third thing that we've already touched on is considering a child's interest and preferences. Now, if you've taken one of my courses or read a lot about what I've written or if you have listened to even a couple of episodes of this podcast, you'll know that I think that we should always start with what a child likes to do. It is so much easier by beginning with what he already is interested in because then you're not having to address that issue on top of something else. So we have to really, really pick out things that will be exciting enough for a child to want to do with you so that you can keep his attention and teach him how to do some new things. And again, all of us like to participate in things that we like. I gave that example earlier about when something's too hard for me, I don't like it. And I bet you're the same way too. And so you have to have to really, really consider that or vice versa. When you don't like something, when it's naturally not something that you want to do or that you think you're interested in, you are and and if it's hard, you're certainly not going to want to do that. So we have to really, really think about and consider a child's interest and preferences, particularly in the beginning when we are planning and so especially important when we have a child who has a really limited attention span. So if he's already predisposed or you know that he really a lot of the time doesn't stay with anything for any length of time at all, you know that that kid is challenged in that area. So Especially for those kids, we have to start with something that they know and that they love in the beginning so that they are more likely to want to stay with us. Now, here's here's the way that I use this all the time. I'll ask moms and dads, and again, there's a whole section about this in um, my new course, Is It Autism? It's in part two of that, so treating toddlers and preschoolers with red flags for ASD. There's a whole section in there about how we meet a child where they are developmentally. And part of that is really determining their likes and dislikes and their own little preferences. And that's a big part of 
the new Is It Autism workbook as well. So, if, so those written instructions for exactly how to do this and the questions you ask and how, kind of step by step by step how to lead a parent through those things, that's coming. But for today, let's just talk about it in terms of asking parents really, really good questions and figuring out what it is that a kid likes and knowing that you'll start there. And let me just say, with our previous example, the kids who really, really are kind of scattered anyway and, and don't stick with anything for very long, you know that you'll need a lot of different activities and a lot of different possibilities for them during a therapy session. And for those kids, most of what you're presenting needs to be something that they that they already like and that they already know, in addition to being just novel enough or just new enough to want to pull their attention in even more. Now, for some kids, I'll tell you, too, we've already mentioned this a little bit, you might not use something that's to that obsession level. <laughs> like we talked about Thomas the Train a second ago. You might not be able to use that because it's, it's too um, captivating for those kids. They like it so much that they will never allow you to play or will never allow you to join in with that activity. So if it's something that's something they hoard or something that's become, again, a compulsion for them, you may not be able to use that toy, but <laughs> you could set it up that they do several things in a row that maybe that they like but aren't quite as crazy about, and then when you feel like you're losing them, that's when you would bring out their very, very, very favorite thing. Do you see how you could do that, how you, when a child's attention is waning, you could almost lure them back with something that they really, really love when you're about to lose them. So you may be able to really uh, manipulate those variables there with, with having it be something that they really like, not like too much, but you save that thing that they, that they are just, most crazy about for when you can't seem to get their attention with anything else. And again, you'll be able to use your clinical judgment, and your own personal experience there to kind of go back and forth with, you know, when do I bring this out? When is it too much? And really judge there. I always ask parents at the beginning to come up with a list by the time that I see a child for the second time of things that they really, really like. And honestly, usually I have them do that as just part of their initial paperwork. That's one of the questions that I'll put on there when I'm about to evaluate a child is I, I want to know what they like. I want to know their favorite foods. I want to know their favorite toys. I want to know their favorite movies or characters so that I can try to think about that when I'm planning activities and I can kind of, I can include it, you know, if I know that a child is crazy about, oh, bubble guppies or Dora or, you know, again, even something that might be a little bit uh, off the wall, if he likes, oh, a purple cup, <laughs> I'll be able to use it and think about it as I'm planning activities for that child. So be sure that you're asking those questions and that you're including those kinds of um, queries when you're asking parents for information so that you are getting what a parent says a child likes. Now remember we've touched on this already and we've talked about it a lot on previous shows. Sometimes a parent will say my child doesn't like anything. That's not true. You just know that you're going to have to work a little bit harder to figure out what those kids do like. And we've talked about this a lot in terms on previous shows in terms of motivation. And so for these kinds of 
children that it's harder to kind of tease out what will be fun for them that might be a mom's homework that week is to really keep a list of every time that child seemed happy or every time he seemed to be enjoying what he was doing and certainly there will be several things and again if you'll branch out don't just ask about toys ask about foods ask about television shows not that you're going to use the TV. You could a little bit, if you needed to, use some snippets from movies and TVs or let them watch just a little bit. And I think I've given that example on the show previously, too, with how you can set that up. But you could use the same characters. You could find toys or whatever material is would be related to that theme and use that. So that that that's something that you're certainly going to want to do. Another way that I really think about a child's interest and preferences, and here's where I'm sort of thinking about how I expand that, is I look for what they like to do and I introduce something really, really similar as to what they already like. So let's say if a little, and let's just stick with our Thomas the Train example. Let's say if a little boy is really, really into trains, he theoretically <laughs> would much more uh, be apt to want to play with other kinds of vehicles. So think about that. Okay, you know, think about, okay, can I bring a racetrack or can we make a racetrack here? Is there something here in this family's home? Can we get a long enough book? Can we get a, just, a, you know, anything that looks sort of like a plank or a piece of wood? How can we make this racetrack? If if mom tells you, again, okay, let's stick to the train activity and then we'll kind of expand off that. He might want to play with boats. You could get, a, you know, a big Rubbermaid or a plastic, some kind of big plastic container or, you know, it's the end of summer. If the, the little plastic baby pool is not too gross, mom may be able to wash that off and bring it inside, you know, and you use that for some water play with Thomas, and then you introduce other kinds of vehicles into that so that you are expanding what his interest is. If he likes trains, he might enjoy the little people bus with their characters. And so can you see how you could take one theme that a child liked and look what are, at what are some other similar toys? Go spend some time just roaming the aisles of Toys R Us or Target or wherever you go and thinking, what what's close to this toy? What might be similar enough that he would that you would engage his attention, but new enough to give yourself, again, some credit for expanding what he likes to do? So think about that. Now, sometimes a child's interests are so restricted that it's difficult to do introduce anything new and for those kids you may have to take that preferred toy that we were talking about with Thomas like the example that I just gave with the swimming pool you may have to take what they really really like and have that be a part of every other activity and again you're, you wouldn't do that forever you would just do it long enough for the child to begin to experience some success and have some fun with that new thing that he's doing and want to continue it. So my, let me give you some examples from the therapy manual as far as what you would do with a kid who was kind of hooked on Thomas and you didn't know what else to do with him. You could take cardboard books and turn them upside down to make a tunnel and you're going to have the trains go under and over and just all kinds of things. You know, you're that little improv you know you improv that 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 new introduction that you'll you'll do it with a book with and you're introducing a new component to that play with Thomas and it's just new enough and fun enough and silly enough and crazy enough 
to get that kid's attention. Uh, you might even use the book so that if the kid didn't like books but he loved Thomas, you might have Thomas do some things with the pictures in the book. He could kiss the baby in the book. He could pat the puppy in the book. Anything, again, to kind of hook his attention on that new little thing but using that preferred activity. He might play with Play-Doh if you drive Thomas over the Play-Doh. So you say that you're going to make some tracks or you could say that you're going to make, you know, balls to put in the back of Thomas, you know, in his little trailer. So anything like that, the train, you may have a farm or a little zoo, little zoo set, and you have Thomas go visit the zoo. And so you might have Thomas crash into different zoo animals or different farm animals. Again, you're trying to expand that child's attention beyond Thomas, but you may have to use Thomas to get him to want to do it. You might get out your plastic foods that the child has never been interested in pretending to cook or make anything. But if you let Thomas pretend to eat the food, the child might want to do it. So there are lots of activities like that, and there are lots of ways that you can use a child's interest and preferences, even if it seems like, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to get beyond this. I'm not going to be able to find anything else he wants to do. You will be able to do it. You just have to give it some thought, double down on your efforts a little bit with planning and thinking, what are some creative things that I can do here? What are some ways that might pull him in? How can I really use this interest to keep him with me? You're also, again, wanting to continue to expand. You don't just let a kid stay in the same place or even have the same interest and preferences. You're always wanting to help him move along and mature and develop. So it's your job to bring in those new things that he'll like enough to want to continue to do the new thing even after you pull the old piece or his preferred piece from the activity. So there are so many things we can do with that and so many different um, ideas. So if you have a kid that's kind of stuck in that place, I hope that this show is giving you some things to think about. And again, if you want to get yourself a copy of Teach Me to Talk the Therapy Manual, the material that we've talked about today in written form is in Chapter 10. And don't forget to use your coupon code PODCAST so that you can save $10 off that. But if you need some additional ideas, they are certainly there in the therapy manual. Okay, so we're at the end of this show. We talked about those three factors that we're considering when planning activities. Let's just recap. We're going to look at a kid's developmental level. We have to meet him where he is developmentally. We can't be too hard or too easy. <laughs> We've got to get him in that just right place. We're looking at his regulatory level. He has to be alert enough to want to play, but calm enough to want to play. <laughs> so you have to get him in that just right spot. And again, how do we do that? We move, sit, move, sit, move, sit. We do some movement activities, and then we come back to sitting. And then when, he's, when we look like we're losing him a little bit, then we get up and introduce a new movement activity. So that's the regulatory piece. And the last factor we talked about today uh, was using a child's interest in preferences, particularly at the beginning, to really hook his attention and get him to want to play with us. Next week, we're going to move on and talk about even more specific ideas based on these three factors. But I'm going to walk you through what I call my activity hierarchy, and that is what kinds of overall activities do we do, and then talk about how we look at developmental level and regulatory level and how we we blend all of these considerations into planning really, really, really effective and successful therapy sessions for toddlers and preschoolers with uh, language delays. So I hope you got some good ideas for this from this show, and uh, we'll continue with this topic next time. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.